I'm Bina Mehta, the chair of KPMG in the UK. Welcome to the final episode of what's been a fascinating and I hope enjoyable first series of Pull Up A Chair. Throughout the series, I've been fortunate enough to talk to some of the world's most influential leaders and thinkers about their experiences in business to uncover what sustainable growth means to them, the most important lessons they've learned, and the advice they'd give to their younger selves. In this final episode of the series, we have compiled some of the highlights. So wherever you're listening, I invite you to pull up a chair. I started every episode by asking my guests what sustainable growth means to them and if we can meet the needs of people, planet and profit. And here's what they told me. Andy Haldane, Chief Executive of the RSA, described it as progress. Looking to this century, we need a model of growth that doesn't just sustain natural capital in the environment, doesn't just sustain social capital in our communities, doesn't just sustain human capital among people, but seeks to replenish it, seeks to regenerate that capital, human, social, and natural. So for me, sustainable growth also needs in the 21st century, unlike the 20th, 19th, and 18th, also to be genuinely regenerative. And that carries super important implications, Bina, for business, for society, and for government. Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, an independent peer in the House of Lords and one of Great Britain's greatest Paralympic athletes, believes it's about developing a business in a more holistic way. To me, it's about getting the most talented people into an organisation at whatever level that is. But it's about having um, a healthy development as well in terms of, of the people. Um, I think it's been you know, really interesting in the last couple of years, so many businesses are now talking about the planet in, in a different way. Um, and actually for the next generation of young people coming into business, you know, there are things that matter to them in a different way than maybe my generation or a, a generation older than me. So um, I think it's gone beyond just looking at numbers of people from, from different groups. It's actually um, developing a business in a, a much more holistic way, which actually is then, it, it's got to be better for the business. Dame Elizabeth Corley, chair of the Impact Investing Institute, talked about making long-term decisions that consider all your stakeholders. I think sustainable growth, the cue is in the phrase. So we're looking for growth because without growth, um, society stagnates, people stagnate, businesses stagnate. Um, but unless it's sustainable, you can't build on it for the future. So for me, it's about making long-term decisions which are sustainable. Ewan Blair, CEO of Multiverse, reflected that we must not forget social mobility when we talk about sustainability. When we talk about sustainability, of course the environment's a part of it, but it is only a part. You've got to think in the end that social mobility, which we spend a lot of time on, our mission is to create a diverse group of future leaders, is essential. And actually lack of social mobility is eroding the tenets of liberal democracy at the moment, which creates a really big long-term problem. There are a lot of people who feel like they have no stake in the future. There are a lot of people who feel like they're left behind or locked out of the labor market or the best opportunities through no fault of their own, and that becomes toxic. And so the more businesses can focus on addressing these kind of structural problems, so be it in education, be it in access to careers, be it in healthcare and health outcomes, which uh, again, there's a huge amount of disparity around, 
it's really really crucial and governments i think at the same time are, are struggling to deal with some of these problems due to the short-term nature of politics but also the fact that we've got we've got more polarization in the political arena certainly in britain and america than we've had for a very long time baroness dambiza moyo preeminent economist and best-selling author shared how she felt sustainable growth reflects what's happening in the world today so to me sustainable growth is about creating improvements in living standards, quality of education, healthcare, infrastructure, so general public goods, um, national security, really human progress in a way that actually moves as many people as possible forward without reducing the livelihoods of other people. So in some sense, it's um, not only about inclusiveness, but it's also about being able to create improvements in living standards um, over time from generation to generation. Growth that meets the needs of people, planet and profit is incredibly difficult to deliver, but my guests said it has to be our priority. Dominic Barton shared how he thinks stakeholder capitalism is compatible with profit maximization. Income inequality is worsening. And that's not good for capitalism. If you, if you want to be, you know, I always go back to the Adam Smith mm. quote, it's the duty of the entrepreneur to take care of the society in which they operate. That's a very, you know, non-Milton Friedman, you know, hard right view. That's a, that's a, you take care of the society in which you operate. And he wrote that in his theory of moral sentiments, you know, and, and I don't think we've made much progress. In fact, I think we've gone backwards um, on on that side of it. On the owner-led, I think I think there has been some progress. By owner, it just means, in my view, that there's, you know, that there's there's interested active shareholders. And I think we are seeing that. I think, you know, I think BlackRock, I think a number of Vanguard, other there's been they're influencing, I think. Mm -hmm. I think they're finding it challenging because they're getting a lot of pressure from multiple sides of of the argument on the ESG side. Uh, but but I, so that, but I think it is, there is a more active role that is being played by owners of the capital. Pension funds are playing a more significant role, uh, but we've got a long way to go. William Vereker, chair of Santander UK, described how sustainable growth is necessary for a business to succeed. At the end of the day, all businesses will only thrive and succeed and be successful in 20 years time, and of course have made profit in 20 years time if they are addressing the future needs of the planet. Uh, they will not be businesses in 20 years time. So it's an absolutely core part of every business to think about how they're going to achieve that. How are they going to be profitable and deliver value to shareholders? But how are they going to grow sustainably and meet the very significant challenge that we all know we have uh, around our planet? And of course, uh, in order to be able to uh, continue to do that, businesses have to innovate. It's all about innovation. If you do the same thing year after year, you fail. But if you innovate, you will succeed. And Dan Moyo highlighted the importance of emphasizing investment if we want to achieve long-term sustainability. There's been so much focus on risk mitigation, capping, uh, greenhouse gases, all very important and crucial stuff. But um, what that has meant is that businesses have uh, leaned into risk 
um, but have maybe um, deprioritized the important aspects of investment. Um, I'm giving climate as one example, but I think there's a broader context um, in areas of inequality, in areas of pursuing growth, where we've become far too risk mitigation fo focused and far too, uh, too, far too little emphasis on uh, thinking about growth and innovation and, and particularly investment um, as being an important piece for, for long-term sustainability. Sir John Kingman, Chair of LNG, reflected on how we should all focus on what we do really well. Well, government and business do need to work together. They do work together. I don't think the way they work together is the biggest problem we have. I think the biggest problem we have is getting business doing what it does really well, getting government doing what it does really well. Despite some of the challenges the UK faces, many of my guests are optimistic about the future and see some of the great examples of innovation as the way to fuel growth. John Kingman spoke about how investment in technology will fuel growth. Uh, we're in a bit of a hole at the moment. We've got to dig ourselves out of that hole. But I think we, we know how economies grow. And the exciting thing is that we know more and more about how to grow sustainably and a lot of the technologies that we need to grow sustainably are now economic. That is to say, the private sector will invest big time in the technologies that we need to make the planet more sustainable. Solar is totally economic now. Onshore wind is economic. Money will pour into those technologies. We just have to create the structures in which that can happen, and it will happen. Entrepreneurialism beyond the startup phase, i.e. scaling, is something Sir John Simons, chair of GSK, feels passionate about. We have to fund the scale-up phase of, of entrepreneurialism. We're great at starting companies. We're not very good at building big companies. And, you know, as you know, I've worked my life in healthcare and in finance. Yeah. Those, two, those two industries don't intersect at all. Andy Haldane explains how innovation is synonymous with increasing productivity. What we found over the course of history uh, is that we can find ways of doing things that involve fewer resources. That's what productivity rises means, doing more with less. And typically we've measured that in terms of uh, less people, the amount we produce per head of population. But we need increasingly to think of it in terms of uh, the resource that is our planet, as well as the resource that is our people. And the same trick that worked uh, in those earlier centuries, innovation, technological improvement, getting more from less, needs to apply with even greater force in the 21st century, when the resource in question isn't just people, mm. but is planet as well. And we know, you know, we are not just social animals, but we are entrepreneurial animals as well. And that's why that wellspring of innovation technology will be the route to redemption and reducing any false trade-offs between people, place and planet. And Claire Barclay, CEO of Microsoft UK, explains how we're on the cusp of the next wave of innovation. Think of the waves of innovation that we've had. You had the, the PC era, you had the internet generation era, you had the mobile phone era, the rise of the social media companies, etc. Um, in our opinion, this is we are on the cusp of the next massive wave of innovation um, that will come, that will literally transform the way societies work, the way businesses operate, yeah. the way jobs will be created in the future. 
Um, and as a result of that, it's a super exciting time to be in this industry. All my guests talked about how purpose and values are really important to business and are the foundation for sustainable growth. John Simons explained how having a very clear sense of purpose meant the medical profession was able to achieve incredible things together. You learn many lessons through your career, and I wouldn't have said this um, a long time ago, but actually I think it is the single most important element of, of sustainability in business. It's what makes people get up in the morning and want to go to work. And if they want to do that, then, you know, everything, everything follows. And, and I, and I, and I really saw this in the pandemic, pandemic with, with GSK, um, where our purpose was to support and improve human health across the globe. And, and people rose to that. We didn't have a we didn't have a direct role. We would have liked a more direct role in you know providing a COVID vaccine, but we made our technology available to everybody in the industry, um, and we we provided our products across the world. People and we didn't lose a single manufacturing moment, and it was because of the power of purpose. You and Blair agreed that purpose is paramount. Purpose alongside values underpins everything they do. Values also really matter, though. And we talk a lot at our company about our values, ranging from things like we believe in equality of opportunity to we treat others as we want to be treated. Um, we rely on facts and logic through to we don't take ourselves too seriously. Because it's, no, it's easier to ask people to work hard and... Um, deliver results that might be stretching if they can bring their full selves to work and if they can have fun in the process. John Kingman spoke about the value of purpose for employees and clients. I can tell you that that strong sense of purpose is very, very important to our people, many of whom could choose to work elsewhere, possibly could earn more elsewhere than they can earn at LNG. Um, uh, but they choose to work at LNG because they believe it's a good place to work and they like to work at LNG. It's also something that's very important to our clients. Dominic Barton quoted the legendary management consultant Peter Drucker when he said, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. He explained to me why culture is his priority. I think culture is the most important thing. I mean, I was at a dinner and the person beside me sort of said, you know, what's the number one issue that you're focused on? And I said, culture. And he, I think he was a bit surprised. He didn't think it was, you know, um, you know, consistent operating performance or yeah. development. It was, I said, culture, because because culture drives everything. And it, that's why, you know, it's the, I'm sorry to say it, the boring, calm, but the Peter Drucker phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. And I'm a strategist, but I believe culture is fundamental. And Claire Barclay shared with us the importance of having a purpose-oriented mindset. You're having to have purpose around um, inclusion, purpose around sustainability, and purpose around actually how you achieve uh, your business goals and business outcomes. Because if I think about how the mission for Microsoft plays out, you know, sometimes you might think, oh, it's just a mission. But I think we use it like as a guiding principle that says, how do you deliver on that growth ambition and if it's, if it's an ambition that might achieve a business goal but doesn't achieve the mission, we often think, actually, then maybe that's not an area to invest in or maybe that's not a thing to do. And we also want to be a company that actually delivers 
sustainable growth by providing a platform to others uh, to be able to uh, expand their mission of sustainable growth. So if we're thinking about clients that we're working with, are we providing a platform uh, for partnership that they can then use the technology to enable them to achieve their aspirations and goals, whether that be measuring sustainability, whether that be innovating um, to reach new clients, etc. So I think it's a we try and make it as, as inclusive as possible and provide a platform for others to be able to build on that. Closely linked to culture is diversity and inclusion, and more importantly, inclusive leadership. John Simons reinforced the power of the collective. I think it was a remarkable episode of many parts of the world coming together to, to solve a problem, and a problem on a global scale. And it was solved because government academia, researchers and industry came together to solve a problem. Elizabeth Corley explained the importance of diversity. The other thing I learned, fortunately, quite early in my career is just because I think in a certain way and at a certain pace, not everybody else around the table is going to be thinking that same way. So you have to pace a meeting and pace a conversation around a topic to allow different people to come in in different ways. Some people need a long time to assimilate information, not because they're not clever, but because actually they're very clever and they're really thinking about it hard. Others will be like that. Mm. And I think one of the things you have to do, it's particularly true as a chair, is allow for those different contributions. We talk about diversity a lot, but diversity of thought and getting a board that can really fire on all cylinders with very different contributions from different perspectives, I think is one of the most interesting things and one of the most challenging things to do, but I, I really enjoy that. Dominic Barton discussed how creating a safe environment where everyone is included drives better performance. But I think being open about where the challenges are and why culture actually matters to how we operate. If you have a safe environment, I don't just mean safe from a classic, you're not going to get injured or attacked or whatever. I'm talking about a safe, psychologically safe environment you're going to get more innovation. Yeah. You're going to get better teamwork. You're you're going to attract, you know, more interesting ideas to be people to be able to work. So it's in the interest of our performance that we provide a safe place uh, to be to be able to operate. And I think it's Im it's important to just remind people that these aren't just words on the wall. They're actually they're core to how we, be, you know make our business work. It, it helps us be successful. Tani Gray-Thompson was clear on how the best leaders build diverse teams around them. Inclusive leadership is um, about uh, getting leaders who not just have, you know, uh, a sort of a, a wide background and come from different backgrounds. It, it's having leaders who think differently about who they bring into the organisation, who are really open-minded in terms of, of who they, they bring in. Um, you know, we've known for years that diverse boards and diversity in business is really important. It's taken some businesses much longer to, to catch up with that. Um, but for me, the, the best leaders I've, I've worked with are the ones who aren't afraid to have really good people around them. The best leaders are the ones who, who aren't afraid to not be the expert in everything. And those are the people who are, for me, amazing to work with. And William Berricker attributes having a team with different backgrounds and perspectives around him to his success. I'd say don't be in such a rush. 
actually. You, 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 in many ways, you think time is short every day, but actually you do have more time than you think. And always be mindful that you can only accomplish anything with the team and people mm -hmm. around you. And building great teams of people with very broad bandwidths of talent, you can't have everybody all the same, is the, the key to success for anybody. Ewan Blair shared ways his organisation is trying to create a diverse group of future leaders. That spans primarily three main areas. The first is admissions, so how you ensure you get diverse pipelines of talent that reflect society and that actually are being overlooked because of a lack of a university degree or other opportunities. The second is around applied learning, so how you build really robust ways of training people in the workplace and you don't cleave off the education and the training. And we use personalized coaching, um, uh, technical skills, durable skills coaching to kind of develop that. And then the third and final piece is community because actually networks matter whether we like it or not. And one of the powerful things that university can give people is access to networks. So we have meetups, social, sports teams, societies. Uh, we have everything from office hours to Harvard Business School with uh, to sessions with Terry Crews, Jeremy Hunt, Laura Koonsberg, uh, and try and expose our apprentices to those experiences. And if you look at what we actually deliver, the main priority is focusing on digital tech and data skills, because they are a very surefire pathway to earning a family sustaining wage and having a long-term sustainable career. The economy is massively underweight those skills, and that's creating big problems for companies' ability to grow and adapt. Um, and at the same time, we also do look at people who are in the workplace because there is a huge tale of talent that needs to be re-equipped. Strong leadership takes many forms as demonstrated by my guests. But I was interested to hear from my guests on how leadership has changed over the years. Elizabeth Corley shared how when she started her career, strong leadership was seen as almost autocratic, but has since evolved to something much more authentic. I've been working for more than 40 years. And um, if I think about my, my assumptions on leadership when I started as an sort of 18 year old kid, um, I thought it was all about authority, telling people what to do, making big decisions, guiding, being strong, sort of almost a military style of authoritative leadership. And honestly, I think in business, that's virtually what I found everywhere. There was a sense of trust in authority, trust in the institution and trust in hierarchy. That has been fundamentally challenged, I think, and rightly so. And I think now if, if you listen to people talk, they would talk about leadership as service, which is almost 180 degrees opposite. Yeah. You still have authority, but you only have the authority that you've earned uh, through the respect and the service you've provided to those that you're leading. And I think that's a very healthy evolution, very healthy evolution. Where the challenges come is that you still have to be decisive, you still have to be clear, you still have to be rooted in purpose, but I think Actually, it's a more inclusive style of leadership. I think it allows more types of people to emerge as leaders that are simply not the charismatic autocratic. Um, you're looking for very different leadership styles, very different personality types. And I think you can remain authentic as you grow into leadership. Whereas when I was starting my career, the question I got asked most often as I got into a little bit more seniority was, can I still be myself and lead? Yeah. Almost as if there was this belief in a trade-off of the things that made you who you were were not consistent with making you a leader. So I think things have changed fundamentally. William Vereker reflected on how the role of boards has changed over time with a greater focus now on diversity and accountability. We have a great deal of accessibility going both ways. 
uh, in the organization. And you know, necessarily, you know, board members don't spend all their days in branches, but we do all spend time in branches. We all visit branches. Uh, we have colleagues from across the business coming to the Exco. They come to the board. We do workshops. We have um, broad sessions with different. We have networks. Uh, and it's worth spending a second on that. We have eight different networks in our organization which represent all sorts of different interests, whether it be retired military personnel, a whole range of different diversity networks. And we, and we think these are really, really important as part of fostering that culture and making it accessible to everyone. So it, it's changed enormously, as you know, as you know, Bina. I'd, I'd pick up two things, really, to highlight. One is um, board accountability. I, I think you know, the level of accountability which board members now feel for the business is, is much greater. That's not to say they didn't feel accountability before, but I think you know, the um, expectation that board members have of themselves in terms of the understanding of the business, the level of detail that they need to go into, and the level of accountability that they need to take. Claire Barclay acknowledged this shift, and I loved hearing her describe empathy as a superpower. I think this notion uh, that the best leaders are ones that lead with um, empathy, um, humility, and inclusion. Um, you know, the empathy one in particular, I, you know, there's a lot written about sort of empathetic leadership and how you lead with empathy. And probably in my, the early parts of my career, that might have been seen as like a weakness. Um, and now it's seen as a superpower. One of my favorite parts of the conversation with guests is discussing what advice they would give themselves or others. People who say they want a work-life balance, I've made, I've made my choices. It's not balanced. It is not balanced. You know, I think if I'd have known I was gonna be here, I might have balanced it a little differently in my early years. You know, this is strange thing to say, trusting my gut more. Yeah, I'd, I'd say to my younger self, just take a breath. Perhaps not to think of careers as a sort of greasy pole where you have to climb to the, ever, to the next step on, on a single ladder. I think I would have told myself that uh, something somebody said to me, no doesn't mean never, it means not now. So I'd probably tell myself to be a little bit more patient. I'd say don't be in such a rush. I think I would have said to myself, just lose the chip on your shoulder a bit earlier. You have to unshackle these limiting beliefs the most important thing is hiring, right? Who you hire, um, because you're surrounded by these people. Throughout this series, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to talk to such a diverse group of leaders about their views on sustainable growth, why purpose is having its moment in the sun, reasons for optimism in a challenging economic environment, and how inclusive leadership drives better business outcomes. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my guests' perspective as much as I've enjoyed the discussions with them. That's all we have time for in this series, but I do hope you'll join me again in the summer for more episodes and an exciting lineup of guests who I'll be inviting to pull up a chair. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>